At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do require your grace this morning, Lord, if we're to understand the things that we have just read, if we're to understand them properly. And Lord, it is not our intention simply to understand these things, Lord. We, we desire to be changed by them. So, O oh Lord, we look to you and we ask, O oh Lord, that you would shape and mold us in the likeness of Christ, that you would do so by way of your word, working your grace in our hearts even now. And to this end, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Everyone said, Amen. Well, this morning, we continue in our study of Matthew 18. And you've probably already gathered that in uh, many ways, this morning's message is a continuum or a part two of the message that uh, we had last time. We were in uh, Matthew 18, which was two weeks ago. The springboard for this text is not stated in Matthew, it's stated in Mark and Luke. And in Mark and Luke's uh, uh, record of this story, uh, they tell us that the disciples uh, had been arguing amongst themselves. Uh, the subject of their argument was, uh, who is the greatest? Uh, they were arguing about which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom that Jesus was inaugurating. And it's not hard to see that uh, this is a, uh, uh, that there's an issue of pride here. And uh, Jesus makes use of the opportunity uh, to teach a valuable lesson. Uh, to put it quite simply, the disciples are entertaining high uh, opinions of themselves. Uh, they're entertaining high thoughts uh, of themselves. And I think we could make application uh, already here in the introduction as we think about that. We, we dwell and we move in a culture that is uh, largely intoxicated with high thoughts uh, of itself. And uh, the church, we would like it to be a safe haven of these kinds of things. But unfortunately, when we come into the church, we find that the, that the same thing is going on uh, in the church as well. Uh, it, there, there's a shameful jockeying for uh, positions. And as I speak about the church, I'm speaking generally about the church at large. I'm not necessarily speaking about anyone here this morning. Uh, but the church at large, 
Um, there, there's always jockeying for position. As, I mean, if you've been around to uh, very many churches, you've, you've seen these things. But if we would even think about this even a little closer to home, um, if you're like me, uh, you do have your seasons where you have high thoughts of yourself. Uh, I would be the first one to confess that uh, that uh, I have certainly spent a shameful amount of time entertaining high thoughts of myself. And I really don't expect that news to be any kind of uh, surprise to any of you because many of you know me quite well. Uh, so you're not finding that surpriseful at all. Uh, this is the time where you're supposed to laugh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we don't have one of those lights, you know, that light up and... All right, enough of that. Um, so how does Jesus instruct his disciples? He does so by way of an object lesson, doesn't he? We, we talked about that last time. He, uh, the, the object of his lesson is a young child. Uh, he, uh, this young boy was probably between the ages of two and three years of age. And Jesus calls this young child uh, in their midst. And he says in verse 3, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, they're concerned about who's going to be the greatest. Uh, and Jesus starts out and says, well, wait a second, uh, fellows. Um, thinking like you're thinking right now, you really shouldn't be concerned about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You ought to be thinking about whether you're going to get in there or not. Because the kingdom of heaven is nothing like uh, the spirit of, in which you're arguing here. Uh, so, uh, what does Jesus mean in taking this child uh, in the midst? What does Jesus mean with this object lesson? Uh, there are some who uh, read these verses and say, you see, what Jesus means here is, is quite simple. What he's calling us to is a simple childlike faith in Jesus Christ. There's an element of truth in that, that we are called to a simple childlike faith in Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, what this camp often means with those words is, let's not get all caught up in doctrinal concerns and theology and all of that stuff. All, all we need is Jesus. And besides all that doctrine and all that theology, all that's going to do is uh, divide us anyway. So we're not going to get into that. Now, uh, of course, to that, we, we must... We must uh, we must raise an objection. Uh, where do we get all of the theology and all the doctrine? I'm talking about the, the true doctrine, the true, true theology. Where do we get it? If it's true and if it's godly, we get it from the pages of God's Word. And if God didn't want us to entertain this, why would He give it to us in the first place? Is Jesus calling this little child in the midst of them so he can say, listen, you know, all that stuff that I gave you in the Bible, oh, forget about it. All you need is just a simple little childlike faith in Jesus and you'll be good to go. We have to reject that, don't we? That's not what Jesus means here. Jesus tells us what he means here in verse 4. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The subject is pride. That's the subject. Uh, the disciples are entertaining high thoughts of themselves. And Jesus is saying, listen, uh, see this little child? He can't clothe himself, can he? He can't feed himself. 
He doesn't have a job. He doesn't have any, he, he doesn't have any of these, he hasn't developed any of these faculties yet. Look how he humbly depends upon his parents. And the, the, the idea here is humble dependence upon God. That's the idea. That's, that's the point in all of this. Now, I'm reviewing this because this is going to become very important as we continue uh, in verses 5 through 9. So let's start. Let's take verses 5 and 6 together. Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child of my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me uh, to sin... Basically, it would be better if a millstone was tied around their necks and they were thrown in uh, to the sea. Now, it's easy to trip up here because at first glance, what Jesus seems to be saying, uh, he's got this little boy in his midst, and what Jesus seems to be saying is saying, listen, anyone who would lead a little boy like this uh, into sin, uh, it, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and they're thrown into the sea first glance we might come to that conclusion and continue to read on and it's not that that is wrong uh, Jesus certainly would condemn such practices leading little ones to sin uh, but the problem with that is it's not enough what Jesus means by this is far more than that uh, we need to understand the, the, the metaphors here we need to understand the figurative language that Jesus is using here we need to understand the object lesson. Who is Jesus referring to uh, in verse 5 when he says one such child? Who is this child that Jesus is referring to? Or in verse 6 when Jesus says one of these little ones. Who does, who does Jesus mean? When we're trying to answer questions like this, there's three things that are important, right? You guys know what three things they are. They're context, right? And what's the other one? context and the third one context 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 and context what is the context here well uh, what is Jesus what has Jesus been saying well he says in verse 3 that unless you turn and become like children you'll never enter the kingdom is Jesus calling us to be childish no no why would Jesus call us to be childish Jesus is calling us to the opposite. He's calling us to grow up, to grow in grace. That is what he's calling us to. He's not calling us to be childish. He's calling us to humbly depend upon, uh, uh, upon God. Now, how are we to do that? How is something like that going to take place in us? Because we're infected with such pride. Left to ourselves, we're not going to trust in Jesus. Left to ourselves, we're going to have a tendency to trust in ourselves. We're going to trust in our performance. We're going to trust in what we have done. We're going to trust in our own track record. We're going to grade ourselves on a scale because we, or on a curve rather, because we realize that our track record really isn't so good. We're going to have a tendency to look around to people who we think maybe not shined up quite as brightly as we are, and then we're going to shine ourselves up uh, by looking at them. That is what we do, isn't it? left to ourselves. That is until the regenerating grace of God comes into our lives. We talked about that a little bit two weeks ago. God has to change us. Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless we're born again, we cannot even see the things of the kingdom of God. 
A change has to take place in our hearts. The Holy Spirit has to turn our hearts. Our hearts are upside down. The Holy Spirit has to turn them right side up so that we can see Christ, so that we can hear His voice, so that we will give up in this self-sufficiency and self-dependence that we're so prone and that comes so naturally to us that we will begin to walk in the posture of humble dependence upon God. Who is one such one? He or she is those whom God has touched the hearts of. They're the objects of His regenerating grace, right? In other words, they're those who have been born again. Those who have received saving grace. So who are the little ones here? Who are the children here that Jesus is referring to? He's referring to His true disciples. That's who He's referring to. We might uh, insert that in the verse, and we might read the verse this way. Whoever causes one of my true believers to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be thrown into the depth of the sea. Or uh, who, who, whoever would cause one of my true disciples to sin, it would be better for them to be drowned in the sea. What is Jesus doing here? He's firing a warning shot to the tempter. If you look at the title of the message this morning, you'll see it says a word to the tempter. Uh, Jesus has a word this morning to the tempter. To the person who would tempt the true disciple of Christ, Jesus has a word, and it is a stern word, isn't it? Look at verse 7. Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Woe to the one by whom temptation comes. When we're reading the Bible and we come across that word woe, uh, it should, should arrest our attention. It's, it's always connected with judgment and the distress and anguish and horrors of judgment, isn't it? Isaiah, what does he say when he sees the Lord in his vision? He cries out, woe is me, for I am undone, if we think of the old King James translation. I'm a man of unclean lips. He sees the holiness of God, and in seeing the holiness of God, he sees the unholiness of himself. He realizes he can't stand in God's presence. And he cries out, I'm doomed, I'm done. When we see this word woe, uh, it should arrest our attention. What is Jesus saying here to the tempter? He has a word to the tempter. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, it'd be better for you if you were drowned than to be doing what you're doing. I, you know, I remember watching a program a few years ago. Uh, it, was a, it was a program on the Coast Guard. I think it might have been on the Weather Channel or something. And it was a, it was a program that involved the Coast Guard and their rescue operations and they showed some of the places. They had footage, uh, film footage of some of the rescues that they've done. And, wow, these are some brave people. Uh, these are some brave men and women who go out into those storms and get lowered down in or sometimes jump out of the helicopters or what have you into those seas like that and, and rescue uh, uh, victims who are drowning or victims of ships or boats that have capsized. And in that program, they said that, you know, one of the greatest dangers 
uh, to the, uh, the rescue operation and to the person who's attempting to rescue the drowning victim, one of the greatest dangers that he or she faces is not from the sea. It's not from the wind. It's not even from the rock. Sometimes they're near rocks. It's from the victim who's drowning him or herself. Because they're in such absolute panic as they're, as they're drowning. Sometimes in the course of this panic, they can actually inflict harm on the person who's trying to save them. And in some cases, uh, they have been drowned by the people uh, who they're trying to save. And we think that through. And we think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that it would be better to be in that position, in that kind of way, than to be the tempter who is tempting his true children to sin. It's breathtaking, isn't it? It's hard to imagine something better um, uh, or something worse, rather, than drowning. Uh, it's hard to imagine that. Uh, now, when we apply these frightening words, it's easy for us to say, you know, uh, the, you know, Jesus is talking about that college or university professor. He's talking about that seminary professor out there who, you know, gets their jollies off and trying to dismantle uh, the, the simple faith of the student that comes into the, uh, into the classroom. And, and those of us who have sent children off to college understand the fear of that, don't we? I mean, there are lots of college professors, uh, skeptical college professors, university professors that make it a point to try to dismantle what uh, their students have learned in Sunday school and learned in church and learned from the, the men and women they grew up around who were faithful and godly men and women. Now, they refer to their faith as silly, uh, mythical, and superstitious nonsense. I remember when I was shopping for a seminary, uh, I heard horror story after horror story of seminary professors who, as part of their curriculum and part of their plan, was to erase what was in their students' heads so that they could fill them with the enlightened knowledge, the true knowledge, which was a bunch of skepticism. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to completely, they come right out and tell you, we're going to completely dismantle everything that you believe, everything that your Sunday school teacher has taught you, everything that your pastor has taught you, and we're going to teach you the truth. I heard horror story after horror story of that as I was shopping for a seminary. And then when I entered into seminary, occasionally we would study some of the popular uh, theories that are posited by these skeptics. And many of them are, are quite ridiculous, actually, as you begin to study them, as you begin to look them through. They require as much faith as anything else would require, actually more so. Uh, if you want to hear some of them sometime, um, just come and see me. I'll share some of them with you. You'll be laughing. It's easy to think that these frightening words apply to, to those professors, but you know there's a but, don't you? <laughs> you know the but is coming. Uh, there's an application that is actually more common and more dangerous and more close to home than that. And one of the ways that each of us can be the tempter is when our lifestyles don't align with our confession. And that's scary because none of us have lifestyles that completely align with our confession, do we? 
And sometimes, sometimes we fall and our lifestyle is, is radically, radically opposed to what we believe, what we profess to believe. And when that happens, the, the world is watching us. And they will say, look, there's a person that says that they believe in Jesus. And look, look at the things that they're doing. Look at the things that they're saying. Look at the way they're reacting to this particular situation. And it leads people to stumble, doesn't it? Sometimes it's just, it's, it's just a person who's a Christian in name only who, who, who is doing this. But there's times when the true Christian is doing this too. We, we, we're not, when we come to saving faith in Christ... We're, we're not perfect. Uh, we're not made perfect right out of the chute, are we? There are far more objections to our faith from this category than from the skeptical university professor. I'm sure that probably most of us have heard those objections. You know, how is it that you can go to church on Sunday, you can say all these things, and then in the parking lot uh, on Sunday, Sunday afternoon act the way that we see so many people acting. How is it? How is it that we can do this? That's what we need to be aware of. Jesus has a word to the tempter, and we can see that each one of us can actually be the tempter. It's, uh, that's not a comforting thought, but it's one nevertheless that is true. Uh, and Jesus' message for us this morning does not stop with a warning to the tempter. He also gives us a powerful word uh, for the hour of temptation. I would call your attention back to verse 7. He says, Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come. You see that word there? The translations may vary a little bit around the room, but he says the temptation must come. Temptation must come. It's inevitable. As the gospel is shared, and as it is received in saving faith, and as it is lived out, temptation is going to come. I, I don't need to spend much time on this because we all know this, don't we? We've all experienced temptation. We experience it constantly. Uh, this resistance to the gospel comes in, in, in two forms. In one form, it, it, it comes from ourselves. As I've already said, you know, when we're... When we become believers... We're not made perfect right away. There's a remnant of sin that continues to dwell in our hearts. And it is that remnant of sin that will indeed uh, resist the gospel, isn't it? Uh, the New Testament calls it the flesh. But we also see that this resistance sometimes comes from others. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that every time the gospel is advanced, it's resisted. Every time it is advanced, it is resisted. Every time it is advanced, it is resisted. What I always tell uh, young believers, folks who have just come to the faith, I always say, listen, um, you know, your, your faith is going to be tested. I don't say, you know, uh, your, your faith may be tested. I say your, your faith will be tested. It is coming. I always like to try to warn people, listen, this is coming. And this is how it will probably come. There's going to be resistance. There always is resistance. So if temptation is going to come, but we need to know how to deal with it, don't we? How do we deal with temptation? How do we handle temptation? That's the subject that Jesus takes up. If you look at verses 8 and 9, Jesus basically says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now, are we to take these verses literally? 
Some of you are looking at me like, please don't say yes. Uh, the, the, there were many folks in the early church that would have said yes, were to take these verses literally. And they did just that, actually. Maybe you've heard the story of the famous church father, Origen. Uh, in order to, in his mind, in order to, to avoid being uh, tempted to sexual sin, he had himself castrated. There were others who had their hands cut off. and um, I don't know of any stories of anyone having their eyes uh, plucked out. Um, I think all of us realize Jesus is speaking figuratively here, right? I hope we all realize that. So why is Jesus being so graphic? Why is he, why, why is he being so graphic here? Because his point is, he wants us to see that we need to be radical about this. And we need to be very decisive about it. And we need to be so right away. Let's avoid no cost here. We need to be decisive about it. We need to be radical about it. So what is Jesus telling us? Well, when the temptation comes, it's right then and there, that's when we need to deal with it. Because if we don't deal with it, what's going to happen? If our eyes wander, and we don't deal with our wandering eyes right then and there, what's going to happen? If we entertain that wandering eye, we might initiate conversation. If we initiate conversation, and that conversation is uh, indeed met with a willing party, well, who knows what can happen? You see, the time to deal with the temptation is, is as soon as it occurs. You know, there's an old illustration that the preachers of old used to use. It's, it's in, a, in the political climate today, it's a dreadful illustration, but I'm still going to use it anyway because it is so, it, it just makes it so clear. Uh, the, the idea of whaling today is something that is abominable to many people, and I'm not advocating that we should go whaling. But if we were whalers, the old whalers would tell you, listen, if you're going to get a whale... You've got to get him before he goes deep. Because once he goes deep, you don't have a shot at him. And the old preachers would say, listen, let's learn a lesson from the, old, from the whalers. If we're going to deal with temptation, we've got to deal with it before it goes deep. Because once it goes deep, we don't have a shot at it. That whale goes down into the, down into the deep. You don't have a shot, do you? Same thing could be said of temptation. If temptation is left unchecked, it'll lead to sin. And if sin is left unchecked, it'll lead to destruction, won't it? That's where it will take us. Notice that Jesus uses the words um, eternal fire and hell of fire. You see in, uh, at the end of verse 8, we'll be thrown into eternal fire, thrown into the hell of fire. Um, you know, that... This idea is so rejected by our culture, both inside the church and outside the church, that have, having already spoken about it as much as I have, I'm already ostracizing myself from a whole bunch of people. You know, I can, I can hear, I, I know people personally, and I can hear them saying to me right now, Rick, this is what you keep doing. You see, Rick, you keep talking about stuff like this. If you want that church to grow, Rick, you're going to need to pipe it down about this stuff. You see, you keep doing this. 
You keep talking about this. No one wants to hear this, Rick. No one, no one wants to hear this. Your church could be three or four times the size that it is right now if you just shut up about this stuff. You just keep doing this. You can't help yourself, can you? What happens if we shut up about this stuff? Yeah, there's some truth to what these guys are saying. This, this isn't fun stuff, is it? We're not going to get the kind of goosebumps from this that we want to get when we come to a service. This isn't fun stuff. It isn't fun for me either. But if we quit talking about this, we could reach a time in the life of the church where we don't believe this anymore. And I fear that's where we are because we've shut up about it. No one is talking about it. We don't even believe it anymore. This hellfire stuff and, you know, that fire and brimstone stuff. I don't believe that stuff. And if we don't believe that stuff, well then, I can't think of too many things that are more dangerous than a church that doesn't believe that there's any danger. I think one of the most dangerous places that we can be in is that when we are, is to be in a dangerous place and not realize you're in a dangerous place. Imagine playing football out in a field that's full of landmines. It wouldn't bother you if you didn't realize that the thing was full of landmines. It wouldn't bother you until someone was killed. I can't shut up about this stuff. I mean, doesn't the context indict me against shutting up about this? We just, we just studied a word to the tempter. You want to realize one of the ways that a pastor can become a tempter is to shut up about this stuff. I could indeed be putting a stumbling block in front of the church by shutting up about this stuff. What is a stumbling block? We don't realize there's any danger. Everything's fine. That's what the prophets did in the Old Testament. That's what Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and so the prophets, they said that you speak peace, peace, peace when there's no peace. We have, we have to take every word of God, not just the ones that we want. That's why I like going through the books verse by verse, verse by verse. I'll confess I'm not tempted to skip this stuff. I, by God's grace, I'm not tempted really to do that. I have temptations in other areas. That's not one of them. Uh, but we have to talk about this stuff. It's hard for me to imagine a more dangerous situation than a church that doesn't believe uh, in the reality of hell. It's hard for me to imagine. What in the world are we being saved from then? What are we being saved from? And as soon as we start to believe that there's no danger, well, they're gonna live in, we're going to live any way we want, aren't we? Now, Jesus is being graphic here because of the great danger. So how do we deal with temptation? We deal with it immediately, we deal with it decisively, and we deal with it radically. That's how we deal with it. So in conclusion, where have we been? Where have we been here? We see a word to the tempter, right? There's an uncomforting thought in that that sometimes we can be the tempter. And this is why we have to live a lifestyle of repentance. Repentance is something we've got to do daily, isn't it? It keeps us on our knees. It keeps us humble before the Lord. And we see that there's a word for, 
for the hour when we're tempted, which is every day, isn't it? It's, almost, it's every day we're being tempted. How do we deal with it decisively, immediately, radically? Deal with it before it goes deep. But I want to leave you with a word of grace. Not that what I've just said isn't graceful. It is all gracious. But look at verse 5 with me. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Look at how closely Jesus identifies himself with his children. He identifies himself so closely. He is so intimately united to his children that to mess with one of his children is to mess with him. And that's exactly what's happening when the tempter tries to, uh, tries to destroy the faith of, of a child of God. They need to understand that they're messing with Christ. That's who they're messing with. But on the other side, when we're being tempted, one of the great antidotes to dealing with temptation is to understand and to remember that as we're being tempted, Jesus is so close to us. He's so united to us. He's right there with us. How can we entertain that with Jesus being so close to us? Think of it this way. Think of it as if Jesus is riding in the car with you. Think of it this way. Is Jesus sitting in the seat next to you? Because the truth of it is, He is. He's actually much closer to you than the, car, than the seat next to you. He's actually much closer to you uh, than being in the car with you. If you're a true child of God, Jesus is dwelling in your heart. That's the antidote. If Jesus was visible before us right now, we wouldn't entertain those things, would we? Uh, some of the uh, saints of old called this practicing the presence of Christ. That's what sometimes it would be called. And sometimes that's taken on forms that aren't healthy, uh, but understanding that Jesus is right next to us. So we have a warning to the tempter, a warning to the tempted, and we see that Jesus is with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this difficult word, but it is so very important, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to warn us of all of the danger that is around us, that is everywhere. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would be pleased, O oh Lord, uh, to deliver us, O oh Lord, as we say in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil, O oh Lord. We pray, O oh Lord, and we thank you, O oh Lord, for this deliverance that is ours. In Jesus' precious name, we all say, amen.